The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Well, we've been going through the book of Acts passage by passage, and uh, this morning we find ourselves in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. This is actually our second week in this passage. Uh, uh, the, The reason we're spending a second week here is because I believe there are still some things in this text that are very important to talk about that we didn't have enough time to cover last week. And it's kind of like eating at a restaurant and loving it so much that you want to go back to that very same restaurant the next day, right? I don't know if you guys have ever experienced that before. I know there have been times where I've eaten somewhere and then the next day I just get this, this craving for that very same restaurant again. And so I go back there a second day in a row. And uh, that's sort of the way I feel about this passage. Last week in part one of the sermon, we looked at the challenge that the early church faced related to food distribution. There were two cultural groups in the church, of course, the Hebrews, it says, and the Hellenists. And the Hellenists were complaining about their widows being overlooked in the church's food distribution ministry. And the apostles recognized that this was an issue that had the potential to cause significant division in the church and that therefore had to be dealt with. However, they also recognized that they themselves weren't the right people to oversee that ministry since they, it says, needed to remain focused on prayer and the ministry of the word. That was their calling. And so they very wisely had the congregation nominate seven men who would be the ones able to oversee that ministry. All of these men, by by the way, were Hellenists because that was the group that was being overlooked. The apostles then officially appointed these men to serve in that way. And the problem was solved. The church continued to grow, it says. And last week we focused on how wise the apostles were to approach things in that way, right? They wisely and effectively dealt with the situation at hand and avoided the very real danger of division in the congregation. And yet they did so in a way that allowed them to continue focusing on what they needed to focus on without being distracted. And so the apostles managed to avoid the twin dangers of both division and distraction. However, there's a lot more I believe the Lord would have us see from this passage, particularly in the area of what's often called mercy ministry. Mercy ministry is basically when Christians help people in practical ways with needs such as Well, food, like we see here in Acts 6, or other needs, like maybe paying an electric bill, or providing transportation, or helping someone get a job, or really whatever the need might be. That list is almost endless. And unfortunately, this is one area where it's very easy 
for churches to become imbalanced. Uh, on the one hand, there are churches, uh, some churches at least, that, that don't believe even that mercy ministry is something that the church, at least as an organization, should be involved with at all. They are adamant that the church should focus exclusively on teaching the Bible and making disciples, and that's pretty much it. Anything else, such as mercy ministry, is seen as a threat to the church maintaining its focus on biblical instruction. And then on the other end of the spectrum, the other extreme, is there are churches that, well, they legitimately do become so focused on mercy ministry that they end up neglecting biblical teaching. They get so wrapped up in doing so many good things that they actually forget the reason why they're even doing those things in the first place. The doctrinal foundations that undergird it all. In some cases, these churches even become so sloppy and careless in their approach to the Bible that they end up losing the gospel altogether. And so those are the two extremes. Yet that's why I love what we see here in Acts 6 so much. Because it shows us what biblically balanced ministry looks like. And that's the main idea I'd like to draw out of this passage. That the apostles wisely organized the church for biblically balanced ministry. The apostles wisely organized the church for biblically balanced ministry. Uh, biblically balanced ministry is that which avoids both of the extremes we just mentioned and instead incorporates both the great commandments and the great commission. Those are the two pillars of biblically balanced ministry, the great commandments and great commission. The great commandments are found in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Someone asked Jesus what the greatest commandment is, and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So love God and love people. Those two commandments encompass the entirety of God's will for our lives. If we'll just do those two things, we'll be doing everything God wants us to do. And as we look at our main passage in Acts 6, we can see that the early church took these commandments seriously. Like specifically the second one uh, of loving your neighbor as yourself. Like when it was brought to the apostles' attention that certain widows were being neglected in the church's food distribution ministry, notice how they respond. They're not like, you know, wait, food distribution ministry? What are we even doing having a food distribution ministry in the first place, right? We just need to focus on biblical instruction and that's it. They don't say that. No, or they don't say, well, you know, guys, it's, it's really nice what we're doing for these widows and we're, we're doing some good work here, but man, we've got these complaints and it's, it's just too much trouble. 
Like it's, it's a nice endeavor, but we probably just don't need to mess with it anymore. And we need to just focus on other things. They could have said either of these things and yet they don't. <laughs> Instead, they show that they're deeply committed to mercy ministry by calling the whole congregation together, which you know, keep in mind, this was like tens of thousands of people right, that they were calling together to organize to meet the need. They made it a priority to make sure that these widows' needs were being met. And that's a perfect example of what Jesus tells us to do in the second greatest commandment of loving our neighbor as ourselves. Uh, we also find other very clear commands for Christians to show love to their neighbors in practical ways in the book of James. In James 1.27, for example, we read that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So true God-honoring religion consists not just of avoiding bad things, but of actually doing good things, specifically ministering to orphans and widows in practical ways. And then in the next chapter, James 2, 14 through 17, James asks, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and what if he says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. So if your faith isn't showing up in practical ways in your life, such as mercy ministry, what good is it? James asks. Faith without those kinds of practical works is dead. Then finally, Jesus himself instructs us on the importance of mercy ministry. In Matthew 25, 31 through 40, listen to what he says. When the son of man comes, he's talking about himself, right? The son of man is Jesus. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So notice here how closely 
mercy ministry is linked with our entrance into heaven. Now, a critical note here is not that we earn heaven by engaging in mercy ministry. Right? That would contradict dozens and dozens of other verses in the New Testament that all clearly teach that we are saved not by our own works or merits or achievements, but through Jesus and him alone. We are saved through faith in Christ alone. However, if we really have faith in Jesus, it's going to show up in our lives in very practical ways. We're going to bear fruit. So what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 25 is that those who inherit the kingdom of heaven are those who bear the fruit of faith by engaging in various acts of mercy ministry to those around them. Guys, caring for the needs of others isn't just like some peripheral thing that we might do if we have some extra time. Jesus expects it to be a regular part of every Christian's life to such an extent that that's the characteristic he chooses to highlight of those who go to heaven. So loving your neighbor as yourself is something that God expects of every Christian and might even be called a distinguishing feature, perhaps even the distinguishing feature of the Christian life. And back in Acts 6, we see that the early church understood that. They were committed to showing love to the widows in their congregation in a very practical way. And were presumably committed to other expressions of mercy ministry as well. Yet as important as it is to obey the great commandments of loving God and loving our neighbor, our expressions of that love, such as mercy ministry, should never be separated from something else that Jesus gives to us, often referred to as the Great Commission. That's the second pillar of biblically balanced ministry. So not only does biblically balanced ministry involve keeping the great commandments, it involves focusing on the great commission. That commission, as I certainly hope you know, if you attend our church regularly, is found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus declares to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And you could summarize all of that in two words. Making disciples. That's what we've been commissioned to do and where our focus should be. On making disciples. Now, yes, it's true that the commands to love God and love our neighbor, th those are the greatest commandments. Those are greater than any other commandments. However, the chief way in which we keep those commandments is by making disciples. That's our priority, just as it was the priority of the church in Acts 6. Because notice in Acts 6, how 
determined, the apostles were, to maintain their focus on making disciples by, what does it say they prioritized? Prayer and the ministry of the word. That's what the top leaders of the church were focused on. And the fact that the top leaders of the church made that their priority demonstrates that that's what they viewed as the central component of the church's overall ministry. So the church's overall ministry might have included mercy ministry, but it didn't revolve around it, right? It revolved around making disciples through prayer and the ministry of the word. You know, had, think, think about this for a moment. Had mercy ministry been the priority? What do you think the apostles would have said when they received word of the, the complaint by the Hellenists? They would have probably said, okay, God, we understand this problem. It's a huge problem, so much so that we as apostles are going to start focusing on this food distribution ministry, and maybe you can nominate seven other men to, that they can do the prayer and the ministry of the word. That's probably what they would have said if mercy ministry was the priority, but that's not what they say. Or what do you think they would have said maybe if uh, mercy ministry was an equal priority with making disciples? Maybe they'd be like, okay, well, there's 12 of us apostles, so maybe six of us could focus on prayer and the ministry of the word, and the other six could focus on mercy ministry, and we'll be good. But that's not what they say either. No, they say all 12 of us as apostles, we're all going to focus on prayer and the ministry of the word, word, and we'll appoint other people for the food distribution. The great commission was their priority. And not only do we see the great commission being prioritized by the apostles in verse four, we also see it being celebrated in verse seven. You know, we celebrate what's important to us. So look what verse seven celebrates. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the cause for celebration in this chapter isn't that the hungry were being fed, but that the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. That's ultimately what it's all about. You know, the word of God here is a reference to everything God's revealed to us in the Bible. And especially to the core message of that revelation, a message that revolves around Jesus. Uh, Jesus is even referred to as the word of God in John 1.14 and Revelation 19.13. And the reason for that is because Jesus is the sum and substance of God's revelation. You see, the Bible tells us that you and I and everyone else are all in a very desperate situation. That we have sinned against the God of the universe and made ourselves deserving of his righteous indignation, his judgment. Yet in his incredible love, God the Father sent his own son, Jesus, to become a human being, 
to live a life of sinless perfection. And then to die on a cross to make atonement for our sins. So, so understand that the, the cross wasn't some unexpected derailment of God's plan, but was actually the very focal point of God's plan, right? In his death, Jesus suffered the full force of God the Father's judgment against sin in our place so that we wouldn't have to. Then three days later, Jesus won an ultimate victory over sin and death when he resurrected from the dead. And he then walked out of that grave and appeared to hundreds of people and finally ascended into heaven where he now stands ready to save all who will put their trust in him. And that trust is something that affects every aspect of our lives. Notice in verse 7 that embracing this message is referred to as what? Becoming obedient to the faith. That's the proper response to this message about Jesus. Like we have to become obedient to it and embrace it in a life changing way. And friends, this is the message that people so desperately need to hear. You know, if we were to go out and do an informal survey and ask people what they thought the greatest crisis in the world is, I'm sure we'd get a variety of different answers, right? I'm sure a lot of people would probably say, you know, poverty, or hunger, or war, or, or maybe a, a disease like AIDS. And let's be clear, all these things are, are terrible things. I'm not sure any of us in this room can even comprehend just how horrific these things are. Yet I believe that the greatest crisis in this world actually isn't any of these things, but rather is the fact Every day, people are dying and going to hell. Like that is by far, I think, the greatest crisis. They are going to a Christless eternity. And we have, guys, we have the way that they can be saved. The only message that can save them. We have what they so desperately need. And that's why proclaiming this message about Jesus is more of a priority than mercy ministry. It's because it meets a greater need. I once heard someone say that if we engage in mercy ministry without an emphasis on telling people about Jesus, then really all we're doing is just making this place, this, this world a nicer place to go to hell from. And I know that's very blunt, but it's also very true. And that's why biblically balanced ministry needs both the great commandments and the great commission. Another way to say it is that the chief way in which we keep the great commandments is by engaging in the Great Commission. The most meaningful way we can demonstrate love 
for people is by sharing Jesus with them. And so, for example, this Saturday, we plan on going out to some of the homeless camps around the city. And uh, we want to distribute some supplies to them and just bless them in some practical ways. However, that's not the only way we hope to bless them. Because inside each one of those drawstring backpacks that we'll be handing out will be a booklet that explains the message of Jesus and also another booklet that has the text of the Gospel of John on it. And in addition, we hopefully will be able to pray with the people that we engage and uh, perhaps even have the opportunity in the course of our conversation to share the gospel with them. And so this outreach effort is a perfect example of something that accomplishes both the Great Commandments and the Great Commission. We never want to do one without the other. And by the way, we do have plans to engage in mercy ministry in a greater way once we get into our church building. Uh, we already have several good ideas for what we'd like to do and uh, things that we can do on more of an ongoing basis, even in this area here in, in Bethel Park. And uh, so we hope in uh, the very near future to sort of take it up a notch with our mercy ministry once we get into the building. And all of these things, of course, these ideas that we have, they all include a very distinct emphasis on the Great Commission. So just like the early church here in Acts 6, we also want to pursue a biblically balanced ministry. Also, as we look at Acts 6, and specifically at these seven men being appointed to oversee the church's food distribution ministry, the question often arises of whether these men were the first deacons. Uh, to give you some background, 1 Timothy 3 mentions two offices in the church, elders and deacons, and gives qualifications for both. And uh, the responsibility of elders is pretty clear. Elders and pastors are, are used synonymously in the Old Testament, it's this, or the New Testament. It's the same office, and their job is to lead the church. Uh, pretty, pretty obvious, but it's not quite as clear with what the deacons are supposed to do. The word deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos, which simply means servant. And so deacons are called to be servants in the church. But what exactly does their service look like? And should we view the seven men appointed here in Acts 6 as the first deacons? And it's a little bit tricky in Acts 6 because the noun that, that I just mentioned, diakonos, is never applied to these men. It's actually not even in the passage at all. However, the corresponding verb diakoneo is applied to what they do. So the apostles state in verse 2, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve diakoneo tables. So these seven men aren't called deacons, but the text does say that they'll engage in deaconing or serving in the church. Um, and we also have to remember that all of this was very early on in the life of the church as well. Things were still very fluid and almost everything was still in the process of being developed. 
So I believe it's best to view these men in Acts 6 not as deacons, but simply as men who engaged in something of a deacon-type ministry. Uh, Perhaps proto-deacons, if you will. Um, And that's significant because it means that there's not really a specific job description for deacons in the New Testament. Now, if we did view these men in Acts 6 as deacons, we might be more likely to conclude that deacons should be focused on mercy ministry. But since I'm not really convinced that what we see in Acts 6 is a mature deacon ministry, I believe the New Testament leaves the question of what deacons should do pretty open. Basically, it's appropriate for deacons to serve in whatever ways the congregation, and especially the elders, need them to serve. So it might be food distribution ministry, like we see in Acts 6, or literally any other ministry that's needed in the church. Uh, One principle that I really appreciate from Acts 6 is that the church is free to organize things in whatever way seems most beneficial and to make the most sense given the situation of that particular church in that particular season. Um, As John MacArthur writes in his commentary on this passage, biblical church organization always responds to needs and to what the spirit is already doing. Organization is never an end in itself, but only a means to facilitate what the Lord is doing in his church. So it seems that deacon ministry in the New Testament is meant to be an incredibly flexible ministry that churches are free to utilize as they see fit and that that best fits the needs that they currently have. And with regard to our church, we do hope to appoint some deacons in the not too distant future. Uh, Most of you know that our church is still pretty new and is still in the process of developing things like that. But I believe it would be beneficial to designate certain uh, people as deacons. Uh, we've already called people other things, such as directors of things and, and uh, team leaders on Sunday mornings. But I do believe that uh, starting to employ the title of deacon uh, for certain people would be beneficial because it communicates something not just about the function that person has, but actually of the kind of person that they are. Um, And the fact that we want to publicly designate them as model servants. So that's how we plan on employing the title of deacon. It's a title that we plan on using, not primarily for certain positions in the church, but really for certain people who just seem especially exemplary as servants. And so basically us giving someone the title of deacon would be kind of like putting a sign on their forehead that said model servant. You know, feel free to think about it like that. I'm sure they would appreciate that, right? Um, But uh, that's what a deacon is, essentially. At least it sticks in your mind, right? And uh, what we believe the the title of deacon is meant to communicate. Um, And as we consider this passage in Acts 6 as a whole, I pray that we can be inspired to pursue biblically balanced ministry in our church.
holding both to the great commandments and the great commission. Because we need both. Like if we try to love people without ever telling them about Jesus, then we're actually not loving them very well at all. Because we are failing to address their greatest and most desperate need. Also, we don't want to fall into the opposite error either. We don't want to share the gospel without seeking to love the people around us in ways that are appropriate for their situation. Because that would result not only in us treating people like projects, which we would never want to do, but also in our gospel witness being much less compelling. You see, ultimately, it's the love we show that makes people want to listen to the message we share. Again, it's the love we show that makes people want to listen to the message we share. That's why the great commandments and great commission should always be kept together. As scripture has said quite famously, what God has joined together, let not man separate.